First of all, I'd just really like to express enormous appreciation um, to my sisters here, Ajahnananda Bodhi, Ajahnananda Sister Sumeda, for their very warm welcome. And also um, to express my amazement that such a place exists in the middle of San Francisco. Um, and to uh, see such a, a large gathering of, of people um, who are obviously uh, enthusiastic about hearing and, and practicing Dhamma. Um, it's quite mind-blowing, really, um, to, to have a monastery here in the city. And um, very, um, very gladdening for me. Um, and as you know, I, I live in Amarawati Monastery, which is a very big monastery in England with um, a large monastic community as well as uh, places where people can come and stay as guests and come on retreat. And uh, it's a couple of years ago that the sisters expressed an interest in coming here and the trust had already been set up uh, in order to support sisters teaching here and um, and it was actually just a year ago, or less than a year, that you actually came to live here. So it's, it's um, really impressive to find such a lovely place for practice uh, here in California, San Francisco. Uh, As we were talking about earlier, and as all of you know, I think, um, our monastic community has been through, um, or is going through, um, quite a, a confusing time. Um, things have happened, people have become concerned, uh, wondering what's going on, and if things are all right and what they can do to help and what the way forward is uh, for all of us and for this tradition. And um, obviously it's uh, a source of concern because this uh, teaching, this way of practice is uh, very, very precious. 
very precious to all of us um, who've had an opportunity to, to just taste it and uh, experience the, the benefits of um, living in this way and uh, practicing according to these teachings. It's not a small thing. Uh, and so naturally there's a, a concern and an anxiety, a wish to make sure that uh, such uh, situations for practice um, can continue in the sense of, well, is it all going to be all right? Is there, is there going to be a monastic community? Are the nuns going to survive? And uh, looking at the community right now, it's a, it's a very real question <laughs> in the sense of you know, people disrobing, leaving. Um, is there going to be anything left? And uh, it's a question for all of us, really. Uh, is there going to be anything left? And, and what can I do about it? What, what, what's a skillful response to, to this situation at this time? And of course, there's been a tremendous amount of speculation. I haven't, I must admit, I have not been very diligent in catching up with Facebook and um, websites and <coughs> blogs. <laughs> I, I took a peep um, last December, and actually that was enough, <laughs> um, because there is a tremendous amount of um, uh, speculation and ideas and kind of taking of positions um, in regard to all of this, and all coming from a very, um, I mean, I'm quite sure, um, my, my sense is it's coming from a very sincere interest. Um, and a kind of wanting to figure it all out, to make sense of it all, you know, find out you know, who's right and who's wrong, and what's really going on here, and what, what can we do about it. You know, very reasonable um, concerns. Um, There was a little exchange earlier on in the evening um, about where somebody lived. And uh, somebody said, oh, they, they, they live here and they live there. And I was remembering uh, something that I heard about a, a very, very old monk in Thailand. I can't actually even remember his name, but it's a story that Ajahn Sujito told me one time, and then Ajahn Amaro uh, mentioned a similar encounter. I, I'm imagining it was the same teacher. And he was, when Ajahn Sujito went to pay respects to him, he was very, very old and very, very frail. And I think he was actually just, you know, lying on a, on a kind of bed. And Arjun Sajito went to, to pay respects and this monk sort of beckoned him to come close. And uh, what he said to Arjun Sajito was, you need, you need. <coughs> Which in Thai, in Thai means stay here, live here. And I think this is a very good teaching for all of us. The idea of making one's place of refuge um, here in the heart. 
It also reminds me of the beautiful image that you have in the next door room, the uh, Prajna statue. Um, and for those of you who maybe don't know Prajna or the, the, the Paramita, the Prajna Paramita is like the, it's often spoken about as the uh, perfection of wisdom. I like the word discernment even better than the word wisdom. Wisdom sounds a bit grand and highfalutin. Uh, the idea of discernment uh, to me points much more to this heart quality of really uh, taking note of what's going on here, how things register here rather than here. I mean, sometimes people concern wisdom, uh, confuse wisdom with what happens up here. But for me, wisdom or discernment is a, is a quality of the heart. There can be some very bright people, very intelligent people, people who have got very, very good brains, but actually not very much wisdom or discernment. In fact, some of the most foolish people are the most intelligent. And some of the wisest that I've met are people who may be not very intelligent. Maybe they don't have a PhD or a, even a degree or even you know, high school certificates. <coughs> but people who have uh, a capacity to uh, respond to life um, in a very direct, very immediate way, who are able to read the uh, language of the heart. And for me, this is a language that I trust. I trust it much more than uh, the language of the head. The language of the head is, can be useful. It certainly has its place. Um, it's very... Um, I really enjoy actually listening to, to people who are, are very bright, very intelligent. I love listening to scholars, uh, people who can analyze things and who can talk about things, who know a lot of things. Um, but the place that I really trust is the, is the place of the heart. The place of the heart that maybe actually doesn't know uh, the right answer to things. And I was contemplating this this afternoon in relation to our own community, our own situation right now, and various issues that are arising. And um, noticing how, you know, for myself, it, it can be very easy to, to jump to a, a conclusion about what's right or what's wrong. You know, and, and what, what's going on, and a kind of intellectual analysis. And, you know, in some ways that's, that's what we want to do. We want to understand. We want to know what the right thing to do is. Um, but I was out walking in the, in the yard, just doing some walking meditation, which is one of the things, one of my kind of um, recreational activities. And it's also where I go if I'm confused, just to go and walk up and down on a path. And just to really enjoy, uh, 
and this might sound strange to some of you, but actually just to enjoy the, the pleasure of actually not having a clue, <laughs> not having the answer, and actually finding a place of peaceful abiding with not knowing, not knowing up here, not having an intellectual, not being able to analyse or to figure it out up here, but just a sense of knowing, uh, and this might sound a bit arrogant, but kind of knowing in, 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 the, in the way that the Buddha maybe knew. Um, I mean, I think he probably knew up here as well, but I, my sense is that when we take refuge in the Buddha, we take refuge in this quality of the heart. We trust that. It's interesting that in our tradition, we have a, a training, an encouragement, like when we're going to give a teaching, uh, not to think about it, not to plan it, but rather to, to trust the quality of presence, the quality of awareness in the present moment. Because the heart can read things in a much more um, broad and subtle way uh, than the head. Like the Lumpur, Atran Sumedha, talks about intuitive understanding, uh, that capacity of the heart to, to register things at a level that is beyond the intellect. It means that we have to sometimes be a bit daring, a bit courageous, and to be willing to give up on our views and opinions about things. Because views and opinions come from this, whereas this quality of the heart responds to things at a much, um, at a different level, on the level of intuition. Reading the heart, going for refuge to the Buddha, to the Dhamma, the truth of this moment. Sangha, that quality of real uh, interest and aspiration to, to live in accordance with this truth. The faith that actually is able to um, dare to let go of the uh, thinking, the analytical mind to keep it in its place. <coughs> so I'm sure that the Buddha and the other wise teachers would never have said, you know, don't think about things, uh, don't try to understand things at that level, don't plan, don't um, you know, organize your lives. Um, you know, so the brain is there for us to use. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very um, wonderful faculty that we have, the, the thinking faculty. But I, I always encourage people to see it as a very wonderful tool or a very wonderful servant rather than the master. To allow our lives to be led by the heart.
This, of course, can be very frustrating to people. There's a wonderful story that Ajahn Amaro told recently at um, Amarawati, um, talking about when Ajahn Chah came to England uh, many, many years ago, and he was visiting the monks. They were living in a, a house in a very busy part of London, a um, little bit like this house, the same sort of layout. It was a kind of high house. I think it had five, five floors, all very, very narrow, and a very narrow staircase going between them. And uh, it was actually opposite a pub. Do you call them pubs or bars? Mm-hmm. And... Uh, so they would sit in meditation in the shrine room, which was sort of similar layout to this, similar shape, sort of two rooms kind of knocked into one. And uh, there'd be this really loud pop music coming from the bar. And uh, so they, they had even more difficult conditions to contend with than, than you have here, although I, I did notice a bit of disturbance during the sit. <laughs> That kid shout, uh, crying, it's very much like our minds, isn't it? <laughs> anyway, Ajahn Chah was staying with the, with the monks in, in the Vihara, and at one time the, um, was the president of the Buddhist Society, the London Buddhist Society, which is the, uh, a very, very old institution. I think it was founded in the, in the 20s, the 1920s, uh, with, the, with the aim of um, creating a place where people could study Buddhism. Um, anyway, he, he was, wanted to invite Ajahn Chah to come for um, a special festival and to give a talk. And uh, you know, he came and he, he asked Ajahn Chah if he'd be able to come, and Ajahn Chah said, I, I don't know. And uh, he kept repeating this invitation, and Ajahn Chah said, I, I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, you know and, and he would smile in a very kind of absolutely charming way. One of the things about Ajahn Chah was that he had enormous charm. And he also didn't mind frustrating people. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the president would sort of come along and say, you know, uh, Venerable Sir, um, will you be able to come and speak at our gathering? And Ajahn Chah just smiles at not sure, don't know. And uh, they were quite frustrated because they wanted to kind of put it on the program and you know, have, a, have a plan. And Ajahn Chah just sort of kept, he refused uh, to respond, which, you know, of course was very, very difficult for this person because you know, he was a polite Englishman and you know, polite English people don't want to kind of appear to be frustrated or upset in public and certainly wouldn't want to lose their temper. But he was, you know, Ajahn Chah was kind of pushing him to the limit. And uh, so there was a kind of question, well, shall we send a car or not? You know, shall, shall, we, shall we, you know, plan for him coming or not? And in the end they decided to, to send the car and, um, you know, they finally sort of went... So I said to Ajahn Chah, you know, Ajahn Chah, are you, are you going to go? Ajahn Chah said, mm. okay. <laughs> <laughs> and he went and he, he gave the talk. Um, so he was somebody who very much lived in the moment. 
rather than making a lot of plans into the future. In that situation, my sense is that he was uh, trying to um, also uh, convey a teaching um, just to enable this person to see the extent to which he was um, uh, perhaps, shall we say, addicted to having a clear plan. As I said before, it's not that there's anything wrong with having plans, um, having views about things, but the encouragement is to, to hold them lightly, you know, so that we're able to um, adapt when things change, when things don't work out uh, the way that we think they're going to, the way that we would like them to. This uh, capacity to uh, be with uncertainty is a quality that I contemplate quite frequently um, because for me it's uh, like an antidote to the hindrance of, of doubt. Those of you who are familiar with the teachings on the hindrances, there are five five of these hindrances in Buddhism we have lists everything is, is listed which is very it's actually, it's actually very helpful because it's, it, I mean, it, it can help us to remember um, different things like the four noble truths the three characteristics the three refuges and then we have these five hindrances and when we talk about hindrances they can seem like, like very bad news you know oh this is something bad you know, a hindrance. But my sense is that the, the only bad thing about a hindrance is when we don't recognize it. But when we're aware that it's present in the heart, that, it, it's, it, it, that it's, um, a hindrance has arisen, uh, then we can apply uh, the appropriate mm -hmm. antidote rather than being um, uh, allowing it to pull us off course, make us lose mindfulness. So there's the hindrance of, of uh, sensual desire, you know, wanting to get something pleasurable, uh, wanting things to work out in a particular way. You know, if, we, if we catch on to that, then it can... Um, obstruct our view of the heart, our capacity to read the heart, to discern the way forward through the heart. Because with these hindrances, they take us up into the head. Do I want this? How, how can I get it? Or the hindrance of ill will or aversion and wanting to get rid of something that we don't like. or wanted to get rid of somebody that we don't like. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
And I think all of us, you know, those of you who live in family situations or communities, there are times when, you know, we really upset each other. And I just think, if only that person wasn't there, then things would be all right. Uh, or if I could just get rid of my anger, or if I could just get rid of my my greed, or if I could just get rid of my jealousy or my uncertainty, you know, the sense of these unpleasant things that we don't want to have to be bothered with. And again, it's a kind of leaning into the future. You know, when I, when I, like sometimes when people come on retreat and they come for an interview and they say, you know, I've been practicing patience with this I just, you know, it just won't go away. And, you know, I say to them, well, I think maybe that wasn't quite the right kind of patience. You know, if, if we're practicing patience to make something go away, um, there's a little hook in there. It's not, it's not, the, it's not the patience, it's his willingness to, to bear with this condition. It's willingness, willing to allow, to, to allow it to, to change in its own time. So there's a sense of wanting to get rid of what we don't like. Leaning into the future. You know, when I get rid of when I get rid of this pain, then things will be alright. When I get rid of this um, doubt, then things will be alright. When I get rid of this um, jealousy, that'll be alright. I used to have a terrible problem with jealousy and I just if only I didn't have this jealousy, then things would be all right. Now I just try to recognize it if it's there. Okay, so this is what it feels like. And I trust that having arisen, like everything that arises in the mind, if we can just hold steady with it, it'll cease. Letting go, letting go of the desire for things to be otherwise. And finding a place of, of ease, a place of letting go of the struggle, no struggle. Which means just holding things gently in consciousness. When we're able to be fully present with conditions, then we come to this place in the heart. Then the um, faculty of discernment, the faculty of the Buddha, is able to see clearly the, um, a response that is going to be for our welfare and the welfare of others. How not to add to the harm and confusion in the world through interfering sure if this is making sense. I hope so. <laughs> uh, then we have uh, sleepiness, dullness. That's another hindrance. And uh, this is something that I, I'm still working at becoming an expert on um, because it's been a, an affliction in, in my monastic life for years and years and years. 
And what I realized is that, dull, that, that dullness is... Sometimes we're dull just because we're exhausted, because we're really, really tired. We've been doing too much. Like probably for all of you, there are times when you know you've you've been at work, you've um, you know you've come home, you decide to sit meditation, and just find yourself falling asleep. And uh, you know, that can be very one can feel very discouraged by this. But it may just be because you're really tired, not getting enough rest. The other reason that I think sometimes that I began to notice in my own mind about uh, dullness was because there were things there that I didn't want to look at. You know, sometimes if there's something we don't want to look at, we struggle with it, we try to get rid of it. Sometimes there's a kind of resignation that can set in. You know, a kind of feeling of hopelessness, dreariness. Uh, and we just blank out. This kind of desire not to exist, not to have to deal with the difficulties of life, the confusion of life. You know, because for all of us there are times when life is very confusing. So one solution is just to, to blank out. The Buddha's uh, recommendation with, with dullness is uh, to contemplate brightness. Uh, one winter retreat at Chithurst, uh, we were following a very, very exacting routine. Uh, this was a kind of phase that we went through as a community of having very exacting routines. And we were having to get up at about quarter to three, because in the morning, that is, <laughs> because uh, <laughs> the nuns had a cottage down the hill from, well, they still have a cottage down the hill from where the, the main uh, shrine room is. And so we would have to get up in time so we could walk up the hill to be there in time for the morning meditation at half past three. And then we would practice all day until late into the evening. So we were incredibly tired, um, quite apart from anything else. And so, and at that time we had the Venerable Bhante Dhammawara there, who was a Cambodian monk, who was very keen on uh, colour therapy. <laughs> he was about 95 at the time, and so he came to stay for the winter retreat. And so they, they set up this one special room for all of us who were particularly um, dull. <laughs> so the people who, were, who nodded most vigorously would be sent off to this room and in this room, they'd had a, this kind of light set up with a, a yellow screen over it. Very, very bright light with yellow, because yellow was the sort of colour for dullness. So we would all have to go to this room and stare into this bright light <laughs> as a way of counteracting our dullness. It never really worked for me. <laughs> I still managed to fall asleep. <laughs> anyway, I, I experiment with, with all kinds of... Uh, practices and uh, <coughs> the best one is keeping the eyes open <laughs> or even standing up that, that's another thing you can do because it's much more diff well it's much more disastrous if you fall asleep when you're standing up <laughs> the Buddha's uh, suggestion for like 
if it's, if it's really serious, is to sit on the edge of a cliff. <laughs> but I've never dared to do this because I, I thought, actually, I'd probably still fall asleep. <laughs> so, so, I've never dared to try that. But um, anyway, he said, as a last resort, just, just have a good rest. And uh, yeah, sometimes that is a good solution. But if you do have a lot of dullness, yeah, contemplate the idea of having a good rest. Uh, practice sitting with the eyes open or standing up. Um, and the other thing is actually try to take an interest in what your mood is. You know, what's going on in there? You know, what am I feeling right now? Is there something that's really troubling with me? Is there something that I'm really angry and upset about or confused about, troubled about? that I'm not really managing very well. This is something I'm not really able to acknowledge about myself or about the situation I'm in. And try to take an interest in that. Because my sense is that often dullness is just a kind of way of dealing with things that are troubling us, that we're angry or upset about or confused about. So these are some reflections about dealing with dullness. The Buddha likened it, the simile he used was like just being in a very, very small, stuffy little prison cell with no light, no window, so you don't know which is up and which is down, uh, can't, can't see anything, not really in touch with anything, just sort of dull. So dullness is not necessarily a kind of blankness. It's often just a, a blanking out of a tremendous amount of stuff that's going on in there. Sometimes these things are better examined, like on the walking path, or even just in, in daily life, you know, just doing quite ordinary things. You can contemplate, you can just notice you know, what your mood is, what's going on. You're just studying your response in the heart, discerning, cultivating this quality of discernment, interest, curiosity about our own personal processes. Restlessness and agitation is another hindrance. Uh, the kind of busy mind the busy mind and the busy body. <laughs> mm. uh, always uh, engaged with something, always doing something. And I think our, our society, I, I'm imagining it's the same here as in Britain. Maybe not. Or maybe it's even worse. <laughs> the feeling of um, if you're not doing something, um, you know, fighting for some cause or you know, holding jumble sales or <laughs> um, saving, the, saving the whales. Not that these are bad things to do. I really do think it's good to save the whales. I, I'm not being facetious. I, think it, you know, I, I do think it's, there, there are many, many good causes. And I'm actually very interested in engaged Buddhism as well as the sitting on the cushion and just considering... Um, ways that we can contribute uh, to the well-being of the planet, to the well-being of each other. 
Um, it's not that I'm against that. But are we doing it as an avoidance, as a way of, of um, avoiding um, actually sitting quietly, reading the heart? We can get into the habit of being busy, the habit of being active, doing things, sorting things. Or even in our meditation, the habit of thinking and planning. You know, how many of us use our meditation time for thinking and planning? You know, often when we meditate, we can actually find that our minds think and plan better than <laughs> at other times. Uh, and I've told this story many times, how I was a Nanagari car when I was a, a novice. As you know, the, the novices are the ones who prepare the meal very often. And at Chithas, we used to have to cook most days. And I would spend my evening meditation, if I was cooking the next day, just planning the meal. And I'd plan it once, and then I'd plan it again, and then I'd plan it again. I'd just keep, you know, the, the, the mind would just kind of keep going over it, over and over again. <clears throat> quite compulsively. I and mean, I was very, very interested in it. <laughs> thinking and planning and eventually I, I made a resolution just to just to plan the meal once <laughs> so I'd sort of plan it I'd get it all figured out and then it would start again and I'd say no <laughs> that was the only way I could deal with it as I said about the hindrances they're only problematic when we're not aware of them, you know, when we allow ourselves to uh, tumble into following them. So with restlessness and agitation, rather than just following that habit of thinking, planning, or doing, 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 actually just for a certain time each day to decide, this is my time for just sitting quietly. attending to the heart just noticing what's going on in there if there's thinking happening in the mind just noticing that rather than following it or getting caught up in it cultivating a sense of, of trust in the refuge the refuge of Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha resting in the heart, resting in the refuge and just allowing the thoughts to go their own way rather than following them with more thinking or with more activity or struggling to try to get rid of them that's the other extreme that we can go to and finally doubt which I spoke about at the beginning Often our response to doubt is to, to think or to, to talk to somebody. <laughs> you know, shall I do this? Shall I do that? So you go and talk to one person. You know, shall I do this or shall I do that? And maybe you tell a whole story about it. And they listen very carefully. This happens to me sometimes. Sometimes people come to me. You know, I'm not quite sure what to do. Shall I do this or shall I do that? And they tell a whole story about it. And I listen very carefully. And uh, 
if I'm not mindful, then I say, well, I think you should do this. And they say, oh, thank you very much. And then the next thing I know is they've gone to ask somebody else (laughs) and gone through the same thing. Because one of the things, I don't know if you've noticed it about doubt, is that uh, it never ends, actually. You know, maybe you get one answer from somebody and you think, well, yeah, that sounds good. Or does it? Maybe I should ask so-and-so. They're wise. I'll go and ask so-and-so. You go and ask somebody else. And they say, well, I think you should do this. Oh, okay, I'll do that. And it just goes on and on and on. Or you decide in your own mind. Like, if, you don't, if you're not one who likes to go and talk to other people about your doubts, you kind of think, and you make lists of, shall I do this or shall I do that? And you weigh, weigh it all up, and you think, well, I'll, I'll do this. Yeah, I'll, I'll definitely do this. And you decide. And then the wobble happens. The other side comes up. And as I said, it goes on and on. Thinking just leads to more doubt. Doesn't solve it. Just coming back to the heart, the place of disownment. Allowing ourselves not to know, not to have the answer. rather than allowing this doubt to pull us into thinking and planning, leading us away from the present moment, the place of refuge, the place of liberation. Of course, this isn't always practical. Um, and you know there have been times when I I haven't known and it is just a matter of making a decision so sometimes what can be helpful is just to, to use the precepts as a guide you know does this would this way would this course of action um, actually be for would it would it be harmful? Would it cause harm? Is it um, is it honest? Um, is it asking me to do something that um, is not skillful? That actually doesn't doesn't really feel right. You know, in it, you know, if I really think about it. Or is it something that actually does seem to um, accord with with the precepts? Does seem to be something that would support well-being for ourselves and others? So sometimes we we have to rely on our uh, rational mind. Um, But to use it skillfully, to really consider what is going to be uh, for everybody's welfare.
and then having decided to um, stick with it. Uh, try not to tumble into the wobble. You just do it and be willing to take responsibility. You know, if, we, if we discover we've made a mistake, to be able to acknowledge that. And I think one of the reasons that we have doubt is because we're frightened of making a mistake, frightened of doing the wrong thing. You know, if we, after having, having decided, uh, we realize that actually this was a big mistake or that it's not the best thing to be doing, then if we can change that, we change it. If we can't change it, we simply acknowledge, okay, that wasn't the best thing to do. Okay, I made a mistake. And see if we can learn from it. So I don't want to make the mistake of uh, sending everybody to sleep or uh, talking for too long. Um, so I think I'd, I'd like to end the uh, talk now and um, to offer these uh, reflections um, and with the encouragement if, if anything has been useful then to pick it up and to make use of it in your lives and if it hasn't seemed useful then um, just leave it, leave it to one side, that's fine. And um, just to say how, again, how delighted I am to be here and to have this opportunity to share some reflections on Dhamma and to wish you all the very, very best uh, with your practice. And um, just um, encourage you to really contemplate particularly these refuges and the possibility of being guided uh, by the heart as the wonderful old monk in Thailand said you need stay here so yeah. <laughs> <laughs>